This is, a, uh, this is going to be um, a lecture on uh, two women named uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. And uh, this is an explanation of Tertullian's writing named On the Martyrs. So, you know, I said one of his writings was called On the Martyrs. Um, this, is, this is that writing. And it's about um, uh, these women who were martyred for the faith. And um, what it reminds me of is when Christ uh, taught that if you love family more than me, you're not worthy of me. And uh, he who does not forsake mother and brother, son, daughter, uh, is not worthy of me. So <clears throat> I'm not going to lie to you. This is a very uh, difficult uh, story. But I think the intent that Tertullian had in writing it is to bring honor to the martyrs um, and also uh, to uh, exhort us uh, to follow in their footsteps um, of, the, of their faith. Um, there are, uh, the footsteps that God may have for us may not, probably will not look the same way that they had to walk into, but the path of faith is the same. So, um, yeah, I'm going to forewarn you, this is not... Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going it, to, it, it's also one of the most descriptive, uh, descriptive accounts we have of a martyrdom. Um, <clears throat> and I left out a lot of details uh, because those details are better read than spoken. So um, you can, uh, if you'd like to read it uh, for yourself, you, I would recommend that you do. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of my forewarning. Um, so these people, we don't know anything really about their, we don't know really know anything about who they were or what they were, what they were like or how they came to conversion or anything like that. Um, but we know that they were um, martyred under the reign of Septimus Severus, right? And uh, probably around 203 and... Um, uh, this is when um, they were called to make an uh, um, called to make a sacrifice, and they'd receive a certificate if they did so. And um, and these Christians refused refused to make the sacrifice. Um, <clears throat> so the first the first person that the story follows is a woman named Perpetua. Perpetua. And um, she was respectfully born, liberally educated, a married matron, having a father, a mother, two brothers, one of whom, like herself, was a catechumen and a son, an infant, at the breast. So very young child. She herself was about 22 years of age. And what is striking about uh, Perpetua's um, story is her father uh, was not a Christian and was continually coming to her, uh, begging her uh, to recant and to, um, and to turn from Christ and be saved, uh, be saved from death, right? Uh, which is kind of ironic. <clears throat> and uh, he, he comes to her in jail and he says, um, just say, say that you're not a Christian. Just tell them that you're not a Christian. And, and Perpetua says this, Father, 
Do you see, let us say, this vessel lying here to be a little pitcher or something else? He said, I see it to be so. And I replied to him, Can it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, No. Neither can I call myself anything else than what I am, a Christian. And uh, her father, of course, was very distressed about this. She languished in prison um, because she did not have her child with her. Um, and it was very difficult uh, for her. And eventually, uh, they allowed her to have her child with her in prison. Um, in, some, in some level of, in some level of uh, compassion. Such solicitude I suffered for many days... And I obtained for my infant to remain in the dungeon with me. And forthwith I grew strong and was relieved from distress and anxiety about my infant. And the dungeon became to me as it were a palace. So that I preferred being there to being elsewhere. <clears throat> Eventually, uh, Perpetua would be forced to entrust the care of her child to her mother and her brother. Perpetua would also report having a vision that she would endure martyrdom. Her father comes to her again to dissuade her. Have pity, my daughter, on my gray hairs. Have pity on your father. If I am worthy to be called a father by you, if with these hands I have brought you up to this flower of your age, if I have preferred you to all your brothers, do not deliver me to the scorn of men. Have regard to your brothers. Have regard to your mother and your aunt. Have regard to your son, who will not be able to live after you. Lay aside your courage, and do not bring us all to destruction, for none of us will speak in freedom if you should suffer anything. And her response, On the scaffold, whatever God wills shall happen, for know that we are not placed in our own power, but in that of God. Meaning, God is sovereign and he will care for us even if this thing ends with my martyrdom. <clears throat> so when they were led away to be tried, uh, to be uh, uh, tried before the magistrate, um, she, was the one, she was last to be tried. And uh, when she took the stand, she looked into the crowd and in the front row of the crowd was her father holding her child. And there's no doubt that the Roman officials were, were, were working with the father to try to get her to recant because they did not want her, they did not want to have to martyr uh, a woman. And she sees her father and uh, he is crying out to her, have pity on the child, have pity on the child who she was assuredly about to orphan by remaining steadfast in Christ. She was then asked by Hilarionus, the proconsul, if she was a Christian, and she replied that she was. And at the response that, that she said that she was a Christian, the, procure, uh, the, pure, uh, the, the procurator ordered that her father be beaten in front of her. <clears throat> The procurator then delivers judgment on all of us and condemns us. Oh, so after 
Her father is beaten with rods. She still refuses to recant. And then after that, they are condemned uh, to, be, uh, to be given to the wild beasts. And they all went down cheerfully to the dungeon, is what she says. And it was after that that her child was refused from her and was given to her mother and her brother to care for. And then her father comes to her a third time. When the day of the exhibition drew near, my father, worn with suffering, came into me and began to tear out his beard and to throw himself on the earth and to cast himself down on his face and to reproach his years and to utter such words as might move all creation. And I grieved for his unhappy old age. The night before she was to fight in the arena, she had a vision. And it's, you know, it's hard to know what was, what was happening there, if it was more of a, a theological idea, if she was having a vision. <clears throat> and the vision uh, was, was such that she was in her, present, in her prison, and the deacon of the church was summoning her. And she was whisked away uh, and came to someone who was wearing white robes, and that person said to her, Do not fear, for I am here with you, and I am laboring with you. And then she awoke and realized, uh, um, oh, um, and this was, of course, as I've said, a major comfort to the martyrs that Christ was going to labor with him. And then after the man says that, she's approached by what she describes to be a rough-looking Egyptian, and she was going to fight this Egyptian. And after rolling around in the dust, she used her heels to attack him and kicked him in the face and defeated him. And uh, what does that sound like? Huh? Egyptian, uh, they, they were uh, uh, very uh, well acquainted with snakes, right? So the serpent and the woman fighting and the woman's heel hits the face of the serpent. She's going, to crush, she's going to crush the head of the serpent, uh, is, is, is the interpretation here. <clears throat> and it, it's, it, it's hard to know if these are things she was seeing or if this was a theological, literary uh, interpretation of the events, right? So I don't have an answer for that on what uh, was going on. But this is her interpretation of it. Then I awoke and perceived that I was not to fight with the beasts, but against the devil. Still I knew that the victory was waiting me. Second woman, her name is Felicitas. And I think I said it, but Tertullian is writing these things, but there was an eyewitness with the group of people. So uh, he's, he's probably, and it probably, probably was not Tertullian, um, but he was receiving these, these details from an eyewitness. Because Perpetua is speaking these things in, in her own voice. Um, who was Felicitas? She was a, a member of the group. Um, there, I should say there were m multiple members of this group. Um, where do I have a list of them at? Yeah, so uh, there, were, there were a number of different uh, catechumens who were friends together, who were imprisoned together. Their names were Revocatus, Felicitas, Saturinus, Secundulus, Satyrus, and Perpetua. 
So this is the story of Felicitas. She was eight months pregnant when she was apprehended, and as the date of her exhibition grew near, she was afraid that because she was pregnant, she would not be able to face martyrdom with her friends. And they prayed that her child would be delivered and would be able to be given to someone in the church. Therefore, joining together with their united cry, they poured forth their prayer to the Lord three days before the exhibition. And by the grace of God, she went into labor, though she was only eight months pregnant. And uh, it was a very intense labor. And she cried out in pain. She was giving birth in the jail. She cried out in pain and labor. And uh, one of the guards uh, began to chastise her, saying, You who are in such suffering now, what will you do when you are thrown to the beasts, which you despised when you refused to sacrifice? And this is what she says back to him. Now it is I that suffer what I suffer. But then there will be another in me who will suffer for me because I am also about to suffer for him. She gave birth to a little girl and the girl was given to um, a woman in the church to be raised. And the day before they were to face the, the exhibition, they ate a last meal together, an agape meal. And as they were eating in the prison, there were crowds of people outside uh, provoking them, uh, to which Satyrus says this, Tomorrow is not enough for you, for you, for you to behold with pleasure that which you hate. Friends today, enemies tomorrow, yet note our faces diligently, that you may recognize them on that day of judgment. And what, the, what Tertullian notes about their faith and their uh, confidence is that there were multiple uh, people who saw their faith and came to believe in Christ um, because of their faith. And as a, as a bit of an application, there is not much that is more encouraging or convincing uh, to the world uh, that they need Christ than when they see Christians suffering and being steadfast in their faith. Tertullian uh, notes that the details of the amphitheater uh, were given by the willing of the Spirit. Uh, not that they were inspired, but that God desired uh, and, and willed that this account be given to us. That's what Tertullian said. And make no mistake, this day was not a day of defeat for these Christians. This was a day of victory for them. The day of their victory shone forth, and they proceeded from the prison into the amphitheater, as if to an assembly, joyous and of brilliant countenances, if perchance shrinking, it was with joy, not with fear. This is the description of them as they entered the Colosseum. Perpetua followed with a placid look and with step and gait as a matron of Christ, beloved of God, casting down the luster of her eyes from the gaze of all. Moreover, Felicitas, rejoicing that she had safely brought forth 
so that she might fight with the wild beasts. From the blood and from the midwife to the gladiator, to wash after childbirth with a second baptism. And when they were, they, they, they would call the baptism of martyrdom the baptism of blood, uh, which was a sign that you were of Christ. That's what he's referring to when he says second baptism. And when they were brought to the gate and were constrained to put on the clothing, the men, that of the priests of Saturn, and the women, that were those who were consecrated to Ceres, that noble-minded woman resisted even to the end with constancy. So they wanted them to put on the, the robes of the, of the pagan gods as a, as a last final like slap in the face. And she said this, We have come thus far of our own accord for this reason that our liberty might not be restrained. For this reason, we have yielded our minds that we might not do any such thing as this. We have agreed on this with you. Injustice acknowledged the justice. The tribune yielded to their being, brought as simply as they were. Perpetua sang psalms, already treading underfoot the head of the Egyptian. Revocatus and Saturinus and Satyrus uttered threatenings against the gazing people about this martyrdom. When they came within sight of Hilarionus, by gesture and nod, they began to say to Hilarionus, Thou judge us, say they, but God will judge you. At this, the people, exasperated, demanded that they should be tormented with scourges whipped as they passed along the rank of the Venatoras. And they indeed rejoiced that they should have incurred any one of the Lord's passions. So they were whipped and they rejoiced that they were worthy to be counted among the Lord's passions. <clears throat> so they go into the Colosseum, and uh, like I said, the details of such are, uh, are very um, detailed, and um, they're better read than spoken. Uh, but I will tell you um, in general terms what, what happened. Um, they faced the wild beasts, the gladiators, and Satan himself. And they were all in some way at first, injured uh, before finally being put to death by the sword in the, gl in the gladiatorial game. And they all died together, um, except for Secundulus, who died in prison before he was able to be martyred in the Colosseum. Revocatus and Saturinus died by the leopard and by the bear. Satyrus was fatally injured by the leopard and was later killed by the sword with Perpetua and Felicitas. And Perpetua and Felicitas were uh, attacked by a, a bull and then were later killed by the sword. It is said that before they were killed, they gave each other the kiss of peace to consummate their martyrdoms. And Satyrus, because uh, they would go into the Colosseum and they'd come back out and they'd be returned back, back and forth. When Satyrus came back out of the Colosseum, he was shepherding a young soldier uh, who was one of their guards. And that soldier's name was Prudence. This is what he said of him. Fa farewell. And be mindful of my faith, and let not these things disturb you, but confirm you. Perpetua likewise was also sh shepherding a young catechumen, and this is that this young catechumen might have been the eyewitness that Tertullian used to, to write uh, this account. She says this to him, Stand fast in the faith, and love one another, all of you, and be not offended at my sufferings. And then they went into the Colosseum uh, to be put to death by the sword. And this is how Tertullian ends the writing. O most brave and blessed martyrs, O truly called and chosen unto the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
whom whoever magnifies and honors and adores assuredly ought to read these examples for the edification of the church, not less than the ancient ones, so that new virtues may also testify that one and the same Holy Spirit is always operating even until now. And God the Father omnipotent and His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, whose is the glory and infinite power forever and ever. Amen. It is true that Tertullian, who's the one that said that it is the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church, it is true that as Christ was the one who died to bring life, we also die to bring life. And our death may not be a martyr's death, but as a pastor, you are going to be required to lay your life down in many ways, daily, to be the servant of all and to bring life to your congregation. So in that way, we can follow after the examples we have of these women and of the others who are with them. Origen. Origen was born in 186 in Alexandria. So northern Egypt. <clears throat> he was uh, educated um, by his father, and he was brilliant. Um, and one of the main uh, one of the main tenets of his education was that he was uh, exhorted to put to memorization much much of the many parts of the Bible. I better present this. The education included memorization of the most of the Greek Bible, which would serve Origen in good stead when he became the foremost biblical exegete of his day, and could be said even past his day. Origen himself was also very acquainted with persecution. Um, His father, uh, his name was Leonidas, was beheaded during a, during a persecution that arose in Alexandria um, under Septimus uh, Severus, and Origen was 17 years old when this happened. When his father was in prison, Origen so desperately wanted to leave and to go join his father, uh, but his mother would not allow him to leave. And the way that she kept him from leaving was she took all of his clothes and hid them so that he would not run out of the house naked. So he stayed with his mom, and Leonidas was put to death. He was an excellent father, and the death of his, his death severely hurt his family, as you can imagine. Um, Origen's education was then up in jeopardy, because they would not have very much money to be able to continue his education, but a wealthy Christian widow would step in to pay for Origen to continue his training so that his talents would not be wasted. And then he would also begin teaching uh, teaching the catechumen, teaching philosophy, teaching rhetoric uh, to be able to help pay for his education. And it was at that time that treacherous persecution uh, came back to Alexandria and he would go into hiding um, and, uh, so that he was not outed by his neighbors. And he was forced to witness 
the martyrdom of at least seven of his students who would be martyred. And it was Origen, uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, who's the father, who is considered to be the father of church history, says this. Not only was he with them while in bonds until their final condemnation, but when the holy martyrs were led to death, he was very bold and went with them into danger. So he was not arrested, was not accused somehow, but he was with them. As he acted bravely and with great boldness, saluted the martyrs with a kiss. Oftentimes the heathen multitude around them became infuriated and were to the point of rushing upon him. So great was the enmity of the unbelievers toward him on account of the many people that were instructed by him in the sacred faith, that they placed bands of soldiers around the house where he lived. Day by day, the persecution burned against him so that the whole city could no longer contain him. For some reason, he was, never, he was, not, murdered at, he was not martyred at the time. And then he would later start teaching the catechumen of the church in Alexandria. <clears throat> and his fame spread as a teacher of the church. And he had many students who would come from far distances to learn from him. And one of these students was a man named Ambrose. Not Ambrose, who we will talk about uh, probably Friday. Uh, another man named Ambrose. Not Ambrose uh, of Milan, another Ambrose. And this Ambrose was very wealthy, and he desired, he loved Origen's teachings on the scriptures so much that he desired that Origen begin to write commentaries on the scriptures. And Origen, you know, of course said, well, that's expensive to write commentaries on the scriptures, and it would be a lot of time. And this Ambrose decided to hire 20 scribes who would be employed under Origen, and who would uh, copy down his commentaries. So Origen had his own, what was known as a scriptorium, uh, funded by this Ambrose. In 230, he left Alexandria for Caesarea because he had an argument with the bishop. And uh, in Matthew 24, 9, it's predicted um, that uh, that there be great persecution that arises in the church, and um, that uh, <clears throat> that there will be many who there will be many who apostatize from that persecution. And Origen said that this is uh, this is going to be similar. Uh, that that soon there will be persecution that come upon the church that will be similar to the one described in Matthew twenty four nine. And it was shortly after he said that, and he moved to Caesarea that emperor Decian rose to power and unleashed upon the church what is known to be the most difficult and terrible persecution that it ever faced. And there were many who apostatized, apostatized away from the church. So Origen was accurate. And it was even Origen... And remember, what, what was Decius's... Uh, what was his... Uh, his, his, his operation. He didn't want to kill the Christians, right? What did he want? He wanted to torture them. <clears throat> so he suffered persecution under Decius around 250 A.D. Um, Decius didn't want him to be killed, as we know what his policy was, so he under, underwent terrible torture um, and was asked to recant an offer uh, for the certificate. The certificate was under Decius. was not under Septimus Severus. I said it was under Septimus when we were talking about Perpetua. 
it was, I, I made a mistake. It's, it was under Decius. So they were torturing Origen to get him to recant. And they were burning him, and they were stretching him, and beating him, and he would not recant. And eventually they released him, and a few days later he died in 250. And he's not known as a martyr, because he was not killed at the hands of the Romans. He's known as a confessor. But I think we can call him a martyr. And it's in, it's in the way that he faced persecution that he received a nickname. That nickname was Adamantius. They called him Adamantius, which means made of steel. There's another term for this Latin term, which is perhaps even more fitting. Adamantius can refer to a diamond. It is an image that captures not only the great hardness, but also the great beauty and value of a man like Origen of Alexandria. Okay, uh, let's talk about his theological contributions. Um, uh, Origen was the first one uh, to write what would be known as a systematic theology. And I think it was, it was called um, On First Things or Principles. Hmm. Let me see if I can have the name of it. Hmm. I don't have the name. Huh? First Principles? Yeah, that's, that's what it's called. Um, so he began to systematize theology for us, which was not as common back then. Um, and it was a, a, a very valuable resource. Um, it is also, um, uh, so, so there's, two, there's, there's, there's basically two con controversies when it comes to origin. The first one is what you have referred to, which is the allegorical interpretation and, and how should that be understood and used or applied or, or cast away. And uh, the other one is that he, in some ways, laid the groundwork for what would come um, in the next century, which would be uh, the heresy of Arianism. Not that Origen was an Arian, because it wasn't around yet, but Origen uh, taught in a way that could be misunderstood to be laying the groundwork for Arianism. Let me show you, uh, let me show you what, what we're talking about here. Uh, oh, but Origen also lays the groundwork for thinking that could deny the deity of the Spirit and the Son in the following century. Um, and I think here's the quote. Let me see. Yeah, here's the quote. Uh, the view which asks our approval of as the most religious and truthful one is the following, that all things brought into being through the Word, the Holy Spirit, is the most honorable, and He is first in rank of all the things brought into being by the Father through Christ. So the, the controversy is all the things brought into being. So what does that mean? Brought into being. What could that mean? Created, right? So what is he saying? What could he be saying? How could he be misunderstood to be saying that the Holy Spirit is created? Yeah. And what was the Arian controversy? That Christ was created. So this would be the groundwork uh, for the next century to misunderstand Origen. I do not believe that Origen was an Arian or an early Arian. I think that he was speaking of being brought into creation in a different way than 
um, what the Arians were saying. Um, I, what I contribute this quote to is lack of clarity. So I don't think, Ari- I don't think Origen was a heretic. So, so then in, in contrast, he says things like this. The Spirit himself is in the law and in the gospel. He is ever with the Father and the Son. Like the Father and the Son, he always is and was and will be. I mean, yeah, right? You know, it's very clear, right? So that's why I'm comfortable saying I I don't think he was a heretic. Um, He also says um, this. This is his passion. I want to be a man of the church, not the founder of heresy. I want to be named with Christ's name and bear that name, which is blessed on earth. I long to both be and be called a Christian as much in deed as in thought. Thoughts or questions? Okay. The second major theological contribution that he gives to the church is an exegetical emphasis. Hermeneutics. that you read the Bible is influenced by origin. The way that everyone reads the Bible after origin is influenced by origin because of the amount of work and labor he put into understanding how the right way we should read the scriptures is. <clears throat> he wrote commentaries which are exegetical expositions of the scriptures. And he wasn't the first to write commentaries, but there was no one who wrote more than him at that time. He can compiles this. For example, when it came to commentaries in the Old Testament, he wrote 13 commentaries on Genesis, 36 on Isaiah, 25 on Ezekiel, 25 on the Minor Prophets, 35 on the Psalms, three on the Proverbs, ten on the Song of Songs, five on Lamentations. In all, there were close to 300 books of commentary, though the vast majority of all these have been lost. However, expository sermons on the large parts of the Old Testament, so he also did sermons, right, which you read one of them. The Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, 1 Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs have survived. As for the New Testament, there are extant commentaries on Matthew and John. Origen was the first to write a commentary on all of the Pauline epistles, although except for his commentary on Romans, only fragments of these commentaries have survived. There are also extant homilies on the Gospels, again, though a vast majority of these biblical homilies have not come down to us. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of writing. Um... His enemies were the Gnostics and, and, and the Marcionism. And it was through his, uh, his detail and his dedication to writing commentary on the Old Testament and, and the value of those commentaries for the church that the church realized that we need the Old Testament. And Marcionism was largely put uh, to rest in the time of origin.
and, and Gnosticism. Um, oh, I don't have this quote. Haken notes that, the, that Leinhardt argues that at the end of Gnosticism, that the end of Gnosticism in the church was, large, was due largely in part to Origen's massive contribution to the writings and the teachings of the Old Testament. <clears throat> Another thing that Origen added, which kind of fits under an exegetical emphasis, but we're going to make it its own category, is what is called the hex apla, which what that was, was it was a Bible that had the Hebrew scriptures on one side and then the Greek and then uh, a translation on the other side, uh, all of the manuscripts, so that the student could study the scriptures and all of the languages and together. And we have things like this now where you have um, you can have a Greek reader, right? A Greek Bible that there you have one on one page you have the Greek text and on a text, and on the other page you have the English text. So this this uh, uh, supported and encouraged st- students to be students of the Word, right? To be to be exegetical. Um, this hexapla was roughly six thousand pages long, and it uh, origin learned Hebrew to do this project, and sadly, uh, it's, it has not been passed down to us. <clears throat> so let's talk about his hermeneutics. Or for, uh, First, any thoughts or questions? Okay, let's talk about his hermeneutics. First, first idea that, that Origen, Origen emphasizes. The scriptures are holy. Origen has sacramentalized the scripture, stating that God's spirit dwells in it with the same real presence as it does the church. Not only that, but the scripture, both old and new, were written by the Holy Spirit. Origen says, they were composed and have come down to us as a result of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the will of the Father of the universe through Jesus Christ. Not only did the Spirit supervise the writings which were previous to the coming of Christ, the Old Testament, but because He is the same Spirit and proceeds from the one God, He has dealt in like manner with the Gospels and the writings of the Apostles. So, you know, this is kind of a side tangent, but there's a, um, you know, there's an idea that, that these early fathers, they didn't think the scriptures were inspired by God. It wasn't until much later where Constantine made the Bible and, and founded the Christian religion that they started saying crazy things like the Bible's inspired. Well, people who say those things just simply are not reading these texts where Origen says things like, the Old Testament was written by the Holy Spirit, and uh, he has also written the Gospels and the letters of the Apostles. Not only has he written them, the wisdom of God has penetrated to all the scriptures inspired by God, even down to the smallest letter. Every word, every letter is inspired. <clears throat> Origen was a purveyor 
of what we refer to as the allegorical interpretation. Interpretation. Now, we're going to talk about what that is. Um, one thing that we must note first before we talk about what that is is that Origen did not utilize the allegorical interpretation to the exclusion of the literal one. You see what I mean by that? He did not say allegorical is the only way to interpret the scriptures. Okay? He said that the first and foremost and most important interpretation of the scriptures is the literal interpretation. Okay? And it's said that he developed three forms of interpretation, but uh, he only really emphasized two. Uh, the first one was the literal, the second one was the allegorical. So for the natural reading of the text, you would read it literally, okay? And we're going to talk about this in a second. Then, for those who are skilled and who are spiritual, you go deeper than the surface meaning of the text into the allegorical understanding of the text, This is what he says about it. This, however, must not be unnoted by us, that as the chief object of the Holy Spirit is to preserve the coherence of the spiritual meaning, either in those things which ought to be done or which have been already performed. If he anywhere finds that those events which, according to the history, took place can be adapted to a spiritual meaning, he composed a texture of both kinds in one style of narration. So in one story, the, the Spirit composed... The allegorical interpretation of it and the literal. So they both come from the Spirit, is what he's saying. Um, he composed the texture of both kinds in one style of narration, always concealing the hidden meaning more deeply. But where the historical narrative could not be made appropriate to the spiritual coherence of the occurrences, he inserted some things, or sometimes certain things, which either did not take place or could not take place. Sometimes also what might happen, but what did not happen. And he does this at one time in a few words, which, taking into their bodily meaning, the natural meaning, seemed incapable of containing truth. And at another, uh, by the insertion of many. So incapable of containing truth, what he means by that is, is that there doesn't seem to be any sort of value to this text. Okay, So there must be a deeper meaning, is what he's saying. Uh, where am I at? Take the bodily meaning. Seem, uh, and this we find frequently to be the case in the legislative portions. So the legislative, the law, he says that this, it's, it's helpful to interpret the law allegorically. And what's interesting, we're going to talk about Augustine here in a second, Augustine struggled with the Old Testament until he heard Ambrose teach it allegorically. Now, I'm not saying we should teach the Old Testament allegorically, but it is interesting. <clears throat> um, or legislative portions. Were there, where there are many things manifestly useful among the bodily precepts, but a very great number also in which no principle of utility is at all discernible, and sometimes even things which are judged to be impossibilities. Now all this, as we have remarked, 
was done by the Holy Spirit in order that those seeing those events which lie on the surface can either be true nor useful, we may be led to the investigation of that truth which is much more deeply concealed and to the ascertaining of a meaning worthy of God in those scriptures which we believe to be inspired by him. Okay. So what we need now is we need an example. Right? Okay. Um... Somebody want to pull up? Numbers 33, 5, and read it for us. It's just the first. So, so the, the people, it may not be the whole verse that he's commenting on. So, so read just the first sentence again. People of Israel left Ramses and camped at Succoth. Yeah. Okay, so just that. Just think about that for a second. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean? What's the literal interpretation of that verse? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it, the literal interpretation is what it says. They left Egypt, Ramses, and they went to Succoth. Is that helpful for you? Right. Origin. origin. So, that, so origin would say that this is not useful. Okay? Unless we allegorize it. Yeah. Let's go deeper. So he's not denying the, the, the surface. This happened. It's historical. It's true. He's not, sometimes when we think of allegory, you think that, that they don't pay, pay credence or honor to the literal interpretation. He does. He does. This happened. This is not only written for allegory. This is written uh, for multiple meanings. This is, the, this is his interpretation of that verse. Okay? So the children of Israel went forth from Egypt and setting out from Ramses, they came to Succoth. So that's the verse you read. The order of setting out and the distinction of the stages are quite necessary and must be observed by those who follow God and set their minds on progress in the virtues. With respect to this order, I remember that already in other places where we have spoken for edification, this is in his sermon on Numbers 33. I remember that already in other places where we have spoken for edification, we have pursued the points that the Lord thought right to give us, but we shall now remind you of them briefly since you ask it. Not the first starting place was from Ramses. Or now, sorry. Now the first starting place was from Ramses. And whether the soul starts out from this world and comes to the future age, converted from errors of life to the way of virtue and knowledge, it starts out from Ramses. What's he saying? Your soul starts where? Ramses, right, which uh, he will interpret as the place of the snake, which is, it was another name for Ramses. In other words, the place of slavery, right? If you're, if you're, if you're interpreting it in the way that the uh, Old Testament is speaking of it, right? So you start out in slavery. And then, for in this language, Ramses means confused agitation or agitation of the worm, uh, by this, it is made clear that everything in this world is set in agitation and disorder and also in corruption, for this is what the worm means. So this is the disruption, the confusion, the corruption of the world that you are living in. The soul should not remain in them. So don't stay in Egypt, but should set out and come to Succoth. Succoth is interpreted tense, which is true. Thus, the first progress of the soul 
is to be taken away from earthly agitation and to learn that it must dwell in tents like a wanderer so that it can be, as it were, ready for battle and meet those who lie in wait for it, unhindered and free. So as a Christian, this is, you know, if I were to allegorize number three, Numbers 33.5, we would say, um, as a Christian, we are born in slavery to sin, and then we are freed from that, and we set out from the old life, and we are wanderers who live in tents until the heavenly kingdom comes upon us. Is that true? It's true. Is that what Numbers 33, 5 is saying? I don't know. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's the allegorical interpretation of it. You know, and, uh, and Origen would do these things. And did you see any of them in the sermon? Yeah, okay, good, good. Okay, we're going to talk about them. Um, so, uh, I'm guessing you're looking for some guidance on how we should, uh, how we should approach these things. Okay. You must know that Paul also teaches allegory, right? Where does he teach it at? In Galatians 4, right? The mountains, the mountain of... Uh, the wilderness or uh, Syria is Hagar and the mountain of Jerusalem is Sarah and we are children of Sarah, right? He also teaches it in 1 Corinthians, right? 10, 4, that Christ was the rock that followed them. You like this. You, you, you like this. Yeah. He, he was saying everything I was saying right before I was saying it. You, you're interested in this. Good. So, so the question is, is uh, you know, what should we do? You know, so here's some here's some principles. Okay, the first is, and these are these are principles that Origen himself held to. Okay, the first thing is, is that the literal surface meaning of the text is what is going to be the most beneficial, and the most obvious, and the most clear. Okay, so do not ever forsake the literal interpretation of the text. <clears throat> the second is, is that when you are teaching, you need to teach mainly in the literal. Okay? But when you decide to try to make some sort of typological understanding of a text like Adam was placed in a garden to keep it and to work it and he failed right when Jesus is raised from the dead he is mistaken to be a gardener what could that could that mean? Is that just a statement? That the guy literally just thought he was a gardener? Or was the New Testament author making a connection there? You see the difficulty, right? Because uh, we cannot be sure, right? But um, we, can, uh, we can make these statements in a way that is honoring to God and uh, and is 
um, being reverent of the literal interpretation of the scripture. Um, Josh, we were just talking about this actually right before the right before we started our lecture on perpetual infelicitas. Josh says that Augustine teaches that if if your interpretation of the scripture um, causes someone to love God and love others, then it is a helpful interpretation, even if it is not the literal interpretation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, he was he was the father of Christian allegorical interpretation, but this was a this was a uh, uh, an allegorical, this, this, this interpretation was uh, very common uh, way before uh, Origen was teaching it, but he, he brought it, he made it very popular in the church. Um, uh, so Origen, um, first of all, d- uh, did not teach the allegorical interpretation to the exclusion of the literal one. So he still taught the literal interpretation. And he still said that you should teach the literal interpretation and that the literal interpretation is uh, what can be most helpful. But in situations like in Numbers 33.5 where it simply says that the people of Israel left Ramses and went to Succoth, you then um, can be free to try to discover what the Holy Spirit has hidden within that text. Does that make sense? So it's not an ignoring of the literal sense. It's a, the literal sense doesn't seem to be helpful to us. What could it be meaning on, on the, underneath? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it, is, uh, it is a very interesting topic, right? And um, I think caution is always good. Um, uh, humility is always good. Um, and passion and love for the scriptures. Um, but uh, you're safest in the literal. But at times, it can be helpful to teach um, in a typological way, um, saying this could be what the author is getting at. <clears throat> Any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Uh, Hellenistic background? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, he, so he was Hellenistic, of course. So he's, he's, he's taught in Greek literature and Greek philosophy, and, and that is where the allegorical interpretation um, uh, comes from. And Origen is bringing, it's father of Christian uh, allegorical interpretations. He brings it into interpreting the scriptures. Yeah. And the question is, is, does the Holy Spirit inspire the scriptures in a way that it can be understood as literal and as allegorical? Yes. Yep. They do. Yeah. Philo was famous for it. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes they did it to the exclusion of the literal. But Origen did not do that. So they they didn't, weren't caring about the literal. They 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 only craved the allegorical. Okay. <clears throat> Anything else? All right. In addition to these ideas, he gave us a number of exegetical uh, principles to follow. So, whether you are interpreting literally or allegorically, or typologically is another term, follow these principles. Okay? The first one 
The Scripture must have a present meaning or application. The second one. Origen sought to interpret, the, to interpret the Scriptures in accordance with the rule of faith. So if he had some sort of allegorical understanding that was outside of the bounds of faith, that was not what the text was saying. Okay? The standard of the faith that the apostles passed down, the creed, the, the teaching of the apostles, uh, within the bounds of, of what we would determine to be Christian theology. So if, he, if his allegorical, allegorical interpretation was that Jesus was not, born of, or was not the Son of God, um, it could not be the right interpretation. So he was allowing uh, um, his doctrine to, to influence how he was interpreting texts. And where do we, how do we get our doctrine? We get it through the literal interpretation of the text, right? So he was allowing his literal interpretation of the text to dictate his allegorical interpretations. Does that make sense? Good. This, all, this one's also helpful. Origen was conscious that he had to always check his exegesis against that of other exegetes with ultimate source of authority being the Scripture itself. So, bounce things off of other guys, right? Next, the exegete must be a person of the Spirit. If it is spiritually written, it is spiritually discerned, right? 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they are, what? Spiritually discerned. So, you must have the mind of God to understand the Word of God, the mind of God being the Spirit. In this, in this sense of the term, he meant being a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, because what you're, what you're getting at is he would call the allegorical interpretation the spiritual interpretation. And it was advanced Christians who were to try to understand the spiritual interpretation of the Scriptures. Um, so, but here he's referring to you must be a Christian. Good question. Anything else? Haken's conclusion is helpful. While a modern student of the Bible would not concur with all of Origen's interpretations, maybe Numbers 33.5 is not meaning what he's saying it is, this last point seems to be vital. Exegesis has an important spiritual component. The Bible interpreter seeks to understand the text, but this task of interpretation cannot occur in an existential vacuum. He must read with other people. While he is reading the text and laboring to understand its meaning and application, the text has its own work to do in shaping the character of the exegete. In fact, it is very evident to anyone who has spent time seriously interacting with Origen's massive exegetical and homiletical corpus that one is dealing with a man of profound spiritual maturity owing to his immersion in the scriptures, whether or not one agrees with the methods and the details of the Egyptian exegete's interpretation. Okay. His writings, in addition to all the things that we just talked about, he wrote a book called Against Celsus, which was a defense of the Christian, of the Christian faith against pagan philosophy. His name was Celsus. Uh, he wrote his book, First Principles. I should have kept scrolling. I had it here. First Principles, Systematic Theology, um, with some of the earliest pneumatology we have. This is what he says of God in his first principles. 
having refuted then as well as we could every notion which might suggest that we were to think of God as in any degree corporeal, we go on to say that according to strict truth, God is incomprehensible and incapable of being measured. For whatever be the knowledge which we are, to, which we are able to obtain of God, either by perception or reflection, we must of necessity believe that He is by many degrees far better than what we perceive Him to be. For as if we, are, we were to see anyone unable to bear a spark of light or the flame of a very small lamp, and were desirous to acquaint such a one whose vision could not admit a greater degree of light than what we have stated with the brightness and splendor of the sun, would it not be necessary to tell him that the splendor of the sun was unspeakably and incalculably better and glorious than all this light which he saw? So what he's saying is, is that this systematic theology is going to be like a candle that reveals to us what God is like. But, but I'm going to tell you right now that God is not just like this candle, but God is the sun who is much more better and brighter and greater than we can possibly imagine. Of Christ. Let no one, however, imagine that we mean anything impersonal when we call him the wisdom of God. So he's personally the wisdom of God, the Lagos. Or suppose, for example, that we understand him to be not a living being endowed with wisdom, but something which makes men wise, giving itself to and implanting itself in the minds of those who are made capable of receiving his virtues and intelligence. So he was a person, and he was the wisdom of God, not an idea of God. He was a person. And then of the Spirit. Nevertheless, it seems proper to inquire what is the reason why he who is regenerated by God and unto salvation has to do with both the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and does not obtain salvation unless with the cooperation of the entire Trinity and why it is impossible to become partaker of the Father or the Son without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what brings us into the Trinity. <clears throat> Book two is on the world, bodily nature, the beginning of the world, the resurrection, the judgment. Book three is on the freedom of the will. Oh, question. Yeah. Is that was Luther bonded to will in direct opposition? Or? No, no, no. So his uh, origin is speaking of the freedom of the will in a way that is uh, saying that we were not free to do what we want, but we were free uh, to. It's not related to Luther's bondage of the will. Luther's bondage of the will was in in reference to Erasmus's the freedom of the will. So this is uh, talking about how mankind is uh, under the power of sin. Yeah, Luther wrote The Bondage of the Will in reference to Erasmus. It's speaking about if mankind can come to God on their own or if they have to be, uh, if they have to be drawn 